0: and to think uh, about what you have to say to us this morning. God, I pray for your Holy Spirit's help now. Uh, please, Lord, help us to, to dig in to this really interesting story and to understand a little bit more about this world that we live in and a little bit more about ourselves and a lot more about your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, well, the, um, the Australian Centre for Grief and Bereavement, you may not have known that there is such a thing, uh, but the Australian Centre for Grief and Bereavement, uh, I was reading some statistics from them today, uh, this week, and uh, they reported that on average in Australia, a woman will cry 47 times a year. That's the average number for a woman. Uh, they also reported that for a man, that number, the average number of times you cry a year is seven. Interesting, hey? I read those statistics, and I discovered that, like most things in life, I'm below average. That didn't come as a surprise to me. I am not somebody who cries very often, Uh, just not wired that way. Uh, Pretty much these days, and this is true, just about the only time I cry is actually here at church sometimes. Uh, But there are a few things in life that will bring on the waterworks in me. Most notably, for me, it was the birth of my two children. Uh, They were periods where uncontrollable weeping kind of happened, quite to my surprise. Uh, when you're in that hospital room and this baby arrives, this baby that you've been waiting for for the best part of a year, and all that, that worry and that anxiety, all that love that you're feeling just suddenly sort of bursts forth, it overflows, and the way it overflowed was out of my eyes. That was my experience when my kids were born. I wonder, have you had that same experience the arrival of a child, the powerful emotion that you feel. It's a powerful experience. It's one of the biggest experiences in anyone's life, I think, the birth of a child. But you will know this, that the larger an object, the bigger and the darker the shadow that it casts. And so whilst the, the goodness of having a child is a very good thing, brings a lot of joy... Well, the same is true that it casts a very dark shadow for people who cannot have children and who long to. There is a pain there. The more joy something brings, the more pain it's able to bring us as well. You know that? And I wonder, in fact, I, w- I don't wonder, I know for sure that there will be people in this church today who know that pain acutely and sharply, that, that longing that you feel for a child. Well, we've just read a story this morning Uh, about a couple who know exactly that feeling, that that feeling of longing. Uh, The story of Zechariah and Elizabeth at the beginning of Luke's Gospel. And you might think that it's a bit of a strange place for us to start this Christmas series that we're doing. Typically in churches, you get to Christmas and you start uh, preaching from Luke chapter 1, verse 26. We didn't get that far today. We're doing all the way up to verse 26. But I tell you, I don't think it's a strange place for us to begin at all. Uh, Because as we're going to see today... This couple's story is actually the start of the Christmas story. It's the place where God chooses to begin his work in bringing his son into the world. This surprising story of an old, barren couple and their longing. Now, as we read through the story there, I will say, it doesn't explicitly say that Zechariah and Elizabeth are longing for a child. It's not mentioned in the text, but I think it's assumed. It's a given. If you were reading this 2,000 years ago, you would know that that was a longing that they experienced because it was just a given back in those days. If you had a family, then you had kids. These things weren't optional, unlike in our day, where it's very much kind of pick and choose. Now, in those days, if you had a family but you didn't have kids well, then society considered you to be cursed by God. And so it's impossible to imagine for Zechariah and Elizabeth, this righteous couple that's mentioned there, that when they got hitched all those years ago, that they ever thought they would be in this position to be old and childless. They had probably prayed for children for years, decades perhaps. And yet when we meet them at the beginning of Luke's gospel, we're told there in verse 7 that they are Old. And not just old, notice how Luke puts it, they are very old. This is putting it delicately. Uh, it, was, um, it was my birthday this week, I turned 34. And uh, if you didn't get an invitation to my party, don't worry. I didn't uh, have a party. Uh, well, I had a party of sorts, actually. I threw myself a bit of a pity party because uh, it, it struck me this week that I am no longer in my early 30s. I'm in my mid-30s, and I'm starting to feel old. I'm noticing a lot more grey hair this year, let me tell you, than I've ever noticed before. I'm making a lot louder noises when I like, stand up out of chairs now. And uh, in fact, you may have noticed that I cut my hair this week. After growing it for two years, I realized that actually being a 34-year-old with a 16-year-old's haircut is not a good look. So I cut my hair, I thought, it's time to grow up, act my age. I feel old this week. But let me say, as old as I feel, I am nowhere near in the ballpark of Zechariah and Elizabeth here. They are very old. The Bible doesn't record it for us, but Jewish tradition tells us that Elizabeth at this age was 88 years old. Can you fathom being 88 years old in this kind of position, longing for a child still? They would have felt acutely, I think, at this stage of life that something had, missed, had, had passed them by. A ship had sailed. There was a hole in their life where a child should have been. No doubt they probably still longed for a child, but they would have had no hope that they had, would actually have one at this age. And so I think it's right for us to wonder, well, why has Luke, who wrote this gospel, why has he included this story about this particular old couple at the beginning of the gospel? And what what we're going to see in this story, and what I hope you take away from today, if you remember nothing else that I say, then remember this, that this picture that we see of Zechariah and Elizabeth and their longing, what we're actually seeing is a picture of what's going on in Israel. The longing of Zechariah and Elizabeth for a child is the longing of Israel. Now, do you know the story of Israel's longing? It had started thousands of years before this. It had started all the way back at the beginning of the book of Genesis when God shows up and speaks to Abraham. Abraham, who becomes the forefather of the whole Jewish nation. And he makes promises to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I am going to bless you. I'm going to turn you into a great people. I'm going to give you land. And it is going to be good. And those promises kind of track all the way from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way to this point here, the beginning of the New Testament. That's, that is the Old Testament story. The story of whether those promises are going to be fulfilled. And at times it really looks like they're going to be. Israel is so close to being in the promised land, to being a great nation, to being blessed. But then it all comes crumbling down time and time again. They, they trip over themselves. Their own sin excludes them from those blessings. That's the story of Israel's longing for these promises to be fulfilled. And so by the time we reach the New Testament, by the time Zechariah and Elizabeth come onto the center stage, Israel as a nation are are scratching their heads. They're looking around and thinking, God, where are you? You made these promises to us, God, thousands of years ago, but we don't see any sign of them. In fact, things look pretty terrible now. We're being oppressed by the Romans. We're poor. We're slaves. We don't have anything. Quite literally, for the Israelites, it felt like they were under God's curse. And so that song that we just sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel who mourns in lonely exile here. That's the air that they breathe at this point in their history. They were longing for God to keep his promises, but there was no sign that he was going to. God was kind of nowhere to be found. The promises looked so far away. God had been silent with Israel for over 400 years by this point. And so Israel felt barren. Barrenness was an image that Israel felt deeply, that there was no life in their nation anymore. That's how they felt. And so that's the backdrop to Luke Chapter 1, as we come to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so I want to pick up the story with you from verse 8. Let's read verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God. Okay, So here is this, this man, Zechariah, serving in the temple of Jerusalem as a priest before God. And what you've got to understand at this point is that... There are approximately, estimates vary, but there's somewhere in the vicinity of 20,000 priests in Israel at this time because every male descendant of the line of Aaron is kind of automatically a priest. So 20,000 <laughs> priests trying to serve at one temple in Jerusalem. You think a a staff team of three pastors is too much here at WBC? They had 20,000 priests and one temple back in ancient Israel. It would have been a nightmare. And so the way that they managed that is that they broke up that that body of 20,000 people into divisions. A division was somewhere between about 700 and 1,200 priests. And you would go on a roster, essentially. You would go to Jerusalem and serve in the temple there with 1,000 other priests once or maybe twice a year. And here is Zechariah. His division is on duty at the temple. What would they have been doing there? They would have been doing a lot of cleaning. There was a lot of cleaning for the priests to do because there was a lot of messy sacrifices that would take place. So the priests would spend their days doing the sacrifices, administering the affairs of the temple, cleaning, singing, worshipping, that kind of thing. But they also, from time to time, had had special responsibilities within the temple. And one of those responsibilities was the, the burning of the incense within the kind of temple itself. And so here is Zechariah, this old, righteous, childless priest spending his one week at the temple each year. And what happens to him? His name is drawn by Lot to be that one priest who goes into the temple to burn the incense. And so off he goes, step, 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 up the temple steps towards the building itself. Now, I want you to just put a pin in that story, the story of Zechariah, for a second. And I want you to come with me back outside the temple, back down the temple steps to, to get a vision of what's happening outside the temple as Zechariah conducts his business inside. Now, have a look from verse 10. Verse 10, at all the, the assembled worshippers, they were outside praying. Okay, so the, the other thousand or so priests are outside the temple. All of the, the worshippers from Israel who had come to worship at the temple that day, there they are. What are they doing? They're praying. What are they praying for? They're not kind of praying the sort of prayers we pray. They're not praying for a new car or a better job. They're praying the prayers of Israel, the prayers in Scripture, prayers that you read in the Psalms, the kind of prayers that say, save us, God. Please show up, God. Intervene. They're, they're prayers of longing. And all of the worshippers outside of the temple are praying those prayers. If you've ever uh, seen images of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem uh, these days, and you can, you've seen those images of modern Jews uh, worship, uh, praying at the Wailing Wall, that's the kind of imagery that I want you to have in mind when you're picturing all these people out there throwing up prayers to God. Thousands of worshippers from sunup to sundown, day in and day out. And while all that is happening out there, whilst they're all outside praying, Luke gives us a very interesting detail about that scene. Uh, he, Luke actually tells us what that crowd of worshippers are starting to think and feel and wonder. It's a very small detail. Did you miss it as we read through? It was there in verse 21. Have a read of verse 21. This is what the crowd are thinking. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. They know Zechariah has gone up. They're wondering, why is Why is it taking him so long to do what he's got to do? It's a small detail. You could have easily just read over it and thought it was insignificant, but I want to put it to you that actually understanding this verse is critical to understanding this story because Luke has done something very clever in this verse. There's a double meaning going on here, and it has to do, you see, with Zechariah's name. You know, names in the Bible often hold a very special significance, and Zechariah's name is no exception. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. So read this verse again with that fresh eyes. What are the people wondering? These worshippers as they're praying, what are they thinking about? Verse 21, the people were waiting for the Lord to remember. That's what they're praying outside, waiting for the Lord to remember, wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. You see what Luke is doing here. He's showing us that in the hearts of those worshippers, they're thinking, God, why are you taking so long? God, come on, I'm waiting for you to to intervene, to answer your promises, to set things right. Why are you leaving us so long to languish, God? I wonder, friends, if, if that question is a question that you've asked this year. As we get to the end of 2018, it's been an interesting year on the kind of global scale, hasn't it? I wonder if you've felt that kind of longing That you've been left to languish here in this world. Have you prayed those kind of prayers, maybe on behalf of our world? As As you look around and you see the wars that continue to rage and that devastate millions, do you feel that longing? As you hear story after story of abuse and scandal and cover up, do you feel that longing for things to be set right, for God to intervene? As you look at any number of other despicable ways that humans treat humans on a daily basis, do you think to yourself, that's not right. That doesn't belong in this world. God, what are you going to do about it? Have you felt that this year? Have you felt that maybe even on on a personal level in your particular corner of the world? Maybe for you this year hasn't turned out the way that you were expecting it to do. Maybe your work situation is just falling apart. Maybe there is tension and strain and stress within your closest relationships in life and you just can't see a way forward. Maybe the circumstances of your life right now are just so hard to bear and so you feel that longing. Come on, God. Set it right. Maybe it's, it's death. Maybe that's where you felt the long, longing this year. Maybe as we come to Christmas, you're especially aware that there is someone or perhaps several people who are not going to be joining you at Christmas this year, people who have died. And so you long, just like we sang in that song before, O come, O come, Emmanuel, disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. That's what we want. Put it to flight, God. Come and fix it. Do you know that longing? Friends, we are living, as it were, in a barren world. That's like a barren womb. We are living in a world that is longing for God to act, longing for God to bring life and to break in. And so I think the question that we have to ask, the question we're supposed to ask at this point is, well, is there any hope for us? Any hope for us in our longing? Any hope for Israel in their longing? Any hope for Zechariah and Elizabeth in their longing? Well, let's return to Zechariah. On the temple, As he heads up the stairs, as he would have walked that path into the temple, uh, in towards the center of the temple, he would have had to walk through the outer court of the Gentiles, past the crowds there. He would have walked past the court of the women, the next kind of court on the inside of the temple, walked through the court of the Jews, until he actually walked into the, the temple building proper. And as he walked, no doubt, he would have been very aware that he was heading to a place where very, very few people... In the world have ever set foot. As he walked, he would have had a gold bowl in his hands, and the bowl would have had some charcoal in it, charcoal that earlier that morning would have been down, down the hill of the temple, burning the sacrifices that were being offered at the foot of the mountain, sacrifices of lambs and doves and things like that. Some of those coals put in a gold bowl, Zechariah walking through all these crowds of people carrying a bit of incense with him as well. And as he walks into the temple building proper, there in front of him, a curtained room, and in front of that, a small pedestal, a pedestal called the altar of incense. He walks in, he puts the gold bowl down, places the incense on it, and blows. And as he does that, the smoke starts to rise up, 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 According to the Psalms and according to places like Revelation 5, what's happening there as that incense burns in the center of the temple is that it's a symbol of the prayers of the nation going up to God. And so, so understand the significance of what Zechariah is doing here. He is bringing the prayers of his nation right into the presence of God. Because remember, in front of him, that curtained room, the Holy of Holies, that is the place where the Ark of the Covenant would have been kept. You know, the Ark, the golden box with the angel statues on top, it was the place where the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, were housed. The holiest place in Israel. Of course, by this point in in Israel's history, that box had gone missing. It had been missing for about 600 years and historians don't know what happened to that Ark of the Covenant there. Did the Babylonians come and take it and plunder it when they invaded Israel? Did the priests hide it and bury it somewhere and forget about it? Did, did Indiana Jones finally get his hand on the Ark of the Covenant that he was searching? Nobody knows what happened, right? And it is a great sorrow for Israel at this point that the Ark is missing. It's, it's yet another reminder for them that the world that they are living in is inhospitable. And even still, even with the ark gone, Zechariah knows that the place that he is standing is still considered the holiest place in the world. The God of the universe takes his seat inside the Holy of Holies. That's what Zechariah is thinking. So just just assess the situation. Let it sink in for you. Here is this, this righteous, old, childless priest, essentially in the presence of God, And he's offering up incense, offering up prayers on behalf of God's people, just hoping to get God's attention. Hoping that God will act, that God will answer these prayers. Can you picture that moment? Can you picture the tension that would be in the air at this point? Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. There's, I love the way Luke writes this. There's just no forewarning. Uh, there's no easing into it. So all of a sudden, there is Zechariah, calm, silent, offering prayers on behalf of a nation, and bang, God's messenger appears. And Zechariah is terrified, isn't he? Verse 12, he he is so worried about this. He wasn't expecting it. He's got good reason to be terrified, right? Because Zechariah knows that if he comes into contact with the unfiltered holiness of God, that that's a death sentence for him. There's a a story, it's not in the Bible, uh, so take it with a grain of salt, but there's a story that the, the high priests in Israel, every time they would enter into that holy of holies, once a year, one man offering a sacrifice for the sins of the nation, before he would go in, he would tie a rope around his ankle and then he would walk in just in case he would be struck dead, coming into God's presence. If he did, then the other priests would be able to pull him out by the rope so that they wouldn't have to go in and get struck dead as well. This is serious business here. The messenger of God has appeared to Zechariah. But verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah. (laughs) Take a breath. (laughs) That is a wonderful way for this Christmas message to begin. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Why? Your prayer has been heard. Wow. Let me ask you, friends, what prayer is the angel talking about? What prayer? Your prayer has been heard, Zechariah. What prayer? Well, do you you see that what Luke is doing here deliberately, he's doing another one of those double-meaning things, like with Zechariah's name. We're supposed to understand there's two things going on here. Is the angel saying that Zechariah's prayer for a child, that prayer that he and Elizabeth have been praying their whole lives, that that prayer is going to be answered? Yes. Yes, the angel is saying that. He's going to have a child. Look, verse uh, verse 13. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You ought to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight for you. Zechariah and Elizabeth were miraculously going to be given a son, a boy who would grow up to be John the Baptist. And he was a joy. He was a delight for them because God, you see, had broken into their barrenness and he brought life. Yes, the angel says, I'm answering that prayer. But it's not just that prayer, is it? It's not just that prayer that that God has heard and he's going to respond to. Because remember, this son born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, he's just a picture of something far, far bigger. God has heard those prayers of longing coming up from this world, this barren world. And God here says, yes, I'm coming. I am going to break into your barrenness, and I am going to bring hope. I'm going to bring life. I'm going to bring a child. Read on from verse 16. Verse 16, where the angel is still speaking to Zechariah, speaking about what his son, John the Baptist, is going to do. Verse 16, He will bring many of the people of Israel back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You see the the big news here? is that God is coming. God is coming to earth. God is going to enter the fray. He's going to experience the barrenness for himself and he's going to set it all right. John the Baptist, he he was just the prelude. He was the appetizer before the main course. He was the, the, the opening act before the main attraction came on stage. You see, God had remembered his promises and he was coming to set the world right. So when, when John the Baptist was born, nine months later, Zechariah was delighted. Actually, for the the nine months from this day all the way up to his birth, Zechariah had been struck dumb by the angel for his disbelief of what the angel was saying to him. But when this baby is born, when Elizabeth gives birth, Zechariah is dumb no longer. This joy just bursts out of him and he he starts to praise God in song. And you can actually read at the end of Luke chapter 1 what Zechariah says when his child is born. And so I want to take you to verse 72. Verse 72. Verse 72, Zechariah understands that with the birth of his child, John the Baptist, he understands that God has come to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his covenant. To remember his covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Zechariah gets it, you see. He knows that this baby boy is proof that God has remembered his promises. And so that time of barrenness Zechariah knows it's coming to an end. Zechariah knows that that God's life is coming into the world. The Lord is going to come. And Zechariah looks forward to it. Do you know, friends, the good news of Christmas is that God has come. He has shown up. He has broken into our barren world From where Zechariah stood, he could only look forward to that day happening some months from then. But from where we stand here today, we look back on history to see that the promised one has arrived. The desire of the nations has come. The Lord Jesus has been born that first Christmas morning. And Zechariah has some incredible insight into what this will mean. The reality that God has now come into the world, Zechariah shows that he, he, he understands the significance of that. And so I want to take you a few verses ahead to verse 76, where Zechariah is essentially, he's almost speaking to his son, to John the Baptist at this point, who's still a baby. And this is what Zechariah says. He says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is the significance of the arrival of God's life Into the world, and what I want to do, I just want to show you three implications, if you like. These are you could think of these like three gifts that come to you because this child has been born. Three Christmas gifts for you this morning, and so have a look there in verse seventy-nine. The first significance that Zechariah understands is that this child is going to bring light in the darkness, light in the darkness. Verse seventy-nine: He will shine on those living in the darkness and in the shadow of death. Friends, are you aware that you are living in the darkness? Are you aware that your life operates under the shadow of death? Are you sick of the way that death ruins relationships and families, ruins this world? Well, the Christmas news is that for those people, a light is dawning. There will be light in the darkness because this child is going to be the one who defeats the enemy of death. Uh, My favourite christmas carol hark the herald puts it this way it says mild he lays his glory by born that man no more may die born to raise the sons of earth born to give them second birth you see because this child has come we now have hope beyond death There is light in the darkness. Through the resurrection of Jesus, we know that death is not the end, and we can have confidence to face the eternity on the other side of it. And so, friends, for us who've received this Christmas gift of light in the darkness, that changes the way we live, doesn't it? It gives you confidence to face whatever terror might be out there, knowing that your life is safe in the hands of God because death has no claim on you anymore. That is the gift of Jesus to you, light in the darkness. Second thing this child brings, look again in verse 79 as well. This child brings peace in the conflict. Verse 79, this child will guide our feet into paths of peace. Let me ask you again are you sick of the fighting in this world? Are you sick of the quarreling? Sick of the distress caused? Is there fighting in in your family relationships, your, your workplace? family uh, fighting in your Are you are you sick of that? Because the Christmas hope is that because this child has been born, there is now peace available, real peace, peace for our souls, peace with God. And so that means, friends, that we, we offer peace to one another, don't we? That's how we live. I've been struck this year by... The way that so many conflicts in this world—conflicts in my own life, conflicts with my kids, as well as conflicts between nations—they arise out of a a sense of revenge, wanting to do harm to the other person. But you—you know—we're not stuck in that cycle of revenge now that we we know and we follow this Christ child, because this Christ child is the one who turned the other cheek rather than retaliating. Yeah, and so our gift at Christmas is peace in the conflict that is yours if you know this Christ child the third third gift here just in verse 77 says that this child will bring us forgiveness in our failings you see there this child will offer the forgiveness of the sin of sins you know, for all the, the talk that we can have about the, the barrenness of this world, the hostility of the place we live, the brokenness of the lives around us, you know, for as much as we can point to those things out there, you do realize, don't you, friends, that all of that brokenness starts right here. It's, it starts in our hearts. That's the root cause. Our sin, our disobedience towards God, our shortcomings, our failures. And yet this child, this one who would be born into the barrenness, he comes to bring you forgiveness. He comes to bring you pardon, to bring you cleansing from sin. He is born to die, and in dying to offer you forgiveness. So, do you, do you know the, the difference that makes to your life? That means you can live your life every single day free from guilt free from shame because your sin has been washed away, wiped clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. What a gift that is at Christmas. Do you see how good this answer from God is, this answer to our longing? Light in the darkness, peace in the conflict, forgiveness in our failings. Those are the gifts which Jesus gives to us at Christmas. And do you know that they are already ours? (laughs) They are available to us right now. We don't need to wait till Christmas Day to tear the wrapping off. They are available to every single person right now because anyone who comes to faith in Jesus and receives with trust those gifts from him, they already have them. We have these wonderful Christmas gifts, friends. I hope you know that. But it's true as well that we still live in this world, right? Right? This, this world is still broken. There is still a barrenness about us. And so we still feel that longing, don't we? It would be a lie to say otherwise. Yes, Christ has come. Yes, he has blessed us with salvation. And yet, we still long for all of this brokenness to end, don't we? The world is still very broken. We still sin. We still mourn death. It's a tricky thing, isn't it? It's the now but not yet. Yes, we have salvation in Jesus, but one day all things will be set right. I think it's a bit like being engaged to be married. You have relationship with that person. The pledge is there. The connection is there. But one day the fullness of that experience will will be felt. It's still to come. It's the now but not yet. So what do we do? Here we are, 16th of December. What do we do with this truth that God has answered our prayers? He has given us these incredible blessings in Jesus. He's broken into our barrenness, but things are still not as they should be. Where does that leave you and I today? Well, my answer to that question, strange as it may sound, is that for you and I today, we must go on longing. We must go on longing. That is how we are to to live our lives. We must long for God to set this world right. Do you feel that longing this Christmas? I hope that you do. I hope you are not satisfied with the way things are on this planet. We must go on longing, but please don't mishear me. We do not long like Israel longed. We do not long in the same way as, as Israel longed. We long differently. We long with confidence because God has answered our prayers. This world is not just a world of barrenness. Yes, it is barren, but a life has been born into the barrenness. God's son, God's life has come. And so now, friends, please understand, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time until Jesus comes again. Surely as he came the first time, he will come a second time. He won't come as a baby born in a lowly stable. No, he will return as God's triumphant and reigning king. And he will set all things to rights once and for all. It's just a matter of time until the longing is over. And so if, if you know this Christ child, if you are someone who, who longs with confidence and I think, friends, we've got, we've got to keep that song in our heart. We've got to keep reminding ourselves of that reality. That we, we do long, but we long with confidence. And so the way I'm going to finish this sermon is that we're going to sing a song. So can I ask the, the band to come up and take the stage? We're going to sing a song that says this. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in Thee. That is the song that must be in our hearts this Christmas. Because in the darkness, in the barrenness, a life has been born and a light has come. I'm going to pray and then the band's going to lead us. Father, we are so thankful for You this Christmas. You breaking into our brokenness and our barrenness and bringing light and life. God, we are so thankful that there is hope for us at Christmas. And we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.